Good evening. It is good to worship with God's people in the house of the Lord. Amen. Please take out a copy of the scriptures and turn to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Please read along with me. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me, teed up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the, for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this evening. We, we pray, we beg, Lord, help us to see your face. Give us this one holy desire that David has to seek you, to know you, to feel the nearness of your presence, Lord. We pray that each of us here this evening would uh, not leave this room unchanged. We pray that your spirit would help us to see the glories of Christ and drive us to you for refuge in the times of trouble. We pray that you would help us to see Christ and to honor you in the way that we live our lives. Be with me now as I preach. Guard me from error and help us to see with the eyes of our hearts the beauty of your majesty and your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's the middle of the night and you suddenly get that phone call. Someone's letting you know that a loved one is hurt. You hear from your boss, there's going to be a large layoff soon. Or suddenly, you have an emergency expense and you just don't have the funds to cover it. You're at your doctor's office, and you get the news of that diagnosis. Suddenly, in your life, you face overwhelming circumstances. You find yourself seemingly 
with no escape. Where do you turn? How do you respond? Now, we're not sure what was going on in David's life when he wrote Psalm 27. But based on what he says, he's facing something that is threatening to devastate him. And he's tempted to be downcast, discouraged, and overwhelmed by it. We've all had those moments. We've all been at that point in our life. The Christian walk is full of trials that God brings into our life to mature us and test us. We know we have given up all to follow Christ, and and we feel the pain of loss sometimes. We feel the sorrow of loved ones turning away from Christ and attacking us when we share the good news of the gospel with them. But none of us have seen the trials that David has. From the moment Samuel anointed David as king, David's life is one long chronicle of hardships, trials, wars, and even attacks from within his own family. And as a result of all that difficulty and pain, David knows better than any of us how to respond to it. After all, he is a man after God's own heart. And in the Lord's mercy, he has given us this psalm to point the way out of our troubles and into triumph. So we're going to see tonight in Psalm 27, David demonstrating four fundamental responses to hardships, four fundamental responses to hardships for finding refuge in every trial. So point one, verses one through three, David's first response is to meditate on the Lord. Meditate on the Lord. So here's David in a life-threatening circumstance, and you get the sense of, of his desperation, the danger that he's experiencing. Evil doers are, are assailing him. False witnesses are slandering him and attacking him on every side, and his enemies are completely surrounding him. Based on the constant references to war, it's likely that he's writing this as he's facing a battle that threatens to crush him. The situation is so dire that he compares his enemies with wild animals, wild animals that are trying to, to tear him to pieces and devour him. And the image that he's using is, is like wild beasts that are so consumed by their bloodlust that they won't stop, they won't be satisfied until they destroy their prey. It seems like everything is going against him. Everyone is attacking him. His enemies are closing in and his very life is being threatened. Can you imagine his temptation? His temptation to turn to the power of his armies or his allies or to try to use the authority of his office as anointed king to control the situation and manipulate it or or find some advisors to help him or maybe just run away and get out of this whole mess in the first place. Now, if this were you and I, we, we would do very well to immediately go to the Lord and ask for deliverance. Pray to God to deliver us from these circumstances. But David doesn't do any of these things. Instead, he responds to these dire and grim circumstances first by meditating on the Lord. He stops in the midst of his trial and focuses his mind on the truths of God. Specifically, we see here, he meditates on three aspects of God, light, salvation, and stronghold. He says God is light. Light in scripture is often used as, as a natural figure for almost everything that is good and positive. 
In the Psalms, light represents joy, goodness, the truth of God's word, uh, vitality in life, and guidance. David meditates on the truth that God is a light to his people to lead and guide them, as well as a source of everything good in life. In Psalm uh, 4-6, look there with me. Psalm 4-6, how David uses light to show that good things come from being in God's presence. He says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face, O Lord. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. So to see someone's face means to be close to them. It's to be in their presence. In Hebrew poetry, it's a way, uh, when you say seek God's face or see God's face, it's a way to say you're in his presence. And so David is saying that just the glory coming from being in God's presence alone is all the good he needs. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And that's what I believe David has in mind in Psalm 27. David's point is that the Lord himself is light. He's the source of everything good. God is the source of all joy, truth, vitality, strength, and everything that he needs. And in his time of need, David reminds himself of that truth. Next, David meditates on the truth that God is his salvation. God is the one who gives relief and victory in trials. David has seen many battles and hardships in his life, and the Lord has saved him from every single one of them. He knows that his victories and deliverances, though, have nothing to do with him and his abilities, but it was all God. They only come from God. David reminds himself that in his current trial, his salvation will come from the Lord. Same place it always has, God himself. And God has done so uh, done this so consistently that David now meditates on the fact that God is, uh, is a stronghold. He can take refuge in the Lord. He is our defense against all of our assaults, even in the most perilous of situations. So why does David remind himself of these truths specifically? Well, because he is in a frightening situation. And the temptation to fear is, is rooted in believing you won't get what you desperately need. For the Christian, we are told to not fear, not to be anxious, uh, because that is wrongly believing a possibility exists that something might go wrong. Something might be out of God's control, something that God doesn't know about. And D- David rightly understands that in what seems like the most dire and grim circumstances, the most impossible situations, he lacks nothing and he has no need to fear. David asks, of whom shall I be afraid? Yes, his enemies are surrounding him and he seems to have nowhere to hide or take, take refuge and defend himself or cover, but David knows that God is his stronghold. His enemies are plotting against him and scheming, He seems to be completely alone in the situation and is threatened to be overwhelmed. But the Lord is his salvation. Everything in his life seems to be going wrong. And it seems that there's nothing good to keep fighting for. But the Lord is his light, the source of everything good and his guide through his trials. 
David knows he has everything he needs in God. And let's not miss the very important word here that keeps getting repeated. You see it there, my. David says, God is my light. God is my salvation. God is my stronghold. David draws his greatest confidence not in just who God is, but who God is to him in his relationship to the Lord. David knows that, yes, it's amazing that God uh, is God and that we should praise him for that. But it doesn't do him any good unless the Lord is his Lord, unless he belongs to God. Now, this is an amazing statement David makes here, that a sinner can call on God as his light and his salvation. How can that be? How is that possible? Every human being is a sinner. We sin, we rebel against God, we break his laws. And there's no soft way of putting this, but if you break God's laws, and everyone does, you are a sinner, and you have the sure judgment of God waiting for you. God tells us that everyone will face him in judgment, every single human being, and that because of our sins, we will receive the penalty that we deserve rightly, eternity in hell, suffering endlessly for our rebellion against the Lord, our rebellion against the eternal God. So how can David say that God is my salvation? How is that possible? David knew something. God had promised to save his people. David knew that the Lord had promised to forgive the sins of those that believed him and followed him. God promised to send a savior for a people, one that would be a light to the nations. In the Gospel of John, we're told Jesus is that light. He is the light of men. And Jesus himself says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, if you've never trusted in Christ for your salvation, there's nothing more important than this message right now. Christ is the light of the world. If you follow him, you will not walk in darkness. Christ came to take the punishment that we all deserve. He lived a perfect, righteous life that pleases the Father, and he died in the place of all those that would put their trust in him and follow him. He rose from the dead on the third day so that all the peoples will rise to life with him. All the people that trust him and follow him will rise. Christ is the light and salvation for you if you believe in him and follow him. Now, I don't know what trials you're going through in your life. And maybe those trials are the very reason why you walked in these doors this evening. Maybe it's why you're here. But the greatest fear that you should have is that of dying and standing in judgment before the Lord and not knowing Christ. Everything else in your life is trivial in comparison to that. This is the good news of the gospel. There's hope. If you repent of your sins, follow Christ, believe in him, you will have eternal, everlasting life, eternal joy in his presence. You will be able to say with David, God is my light, God is my salvation. You, like David, will be able to draw your confidence in God in the middle of life's most terrifying circumstances because God will be your stronghold. Come to Christ. Have this comfort, have this confidence that David speaks of, this joy for all eternity. 
Rightly, David asks, who shall I fear? His question is his own answer. If God is your light, your salvation, your stronghold, there is no one to fear. Come to Christ. Have this light, salvation, and stronghold. Now, David had seen frightening circumstances in his life. And yet he can say in verse 2 that it was always his adversaries that stumbled and fell. He's seen troubles that all of us here put together in our entire lives would not see uh, the same amount of difficulties that he did. And every single time, God had delivered him. Every time, God had defeated his enemies. He faced a giant as a teenager and defeated him with a rock. Saul, his king, spent years hunting him, trying to kill him, only to end up taking his own life at the end of a tragic battle. David's own son, Absalom, had a rebellion against him, tried to tear the kingdom away from David and kill him, and God delivered him. Absalom got stuck in a tree. His hair got tangled in the branches. Over and over again, we see that the Lord had miraculously, powerfully delivered David and fought for him. So during his trials, David has learned to meditate. He's learned to meditate on his relationship with God and God's faithfulness. And as a result, he can say in verse 3, in the face of every trial, yet I will be confident. What about you? When you face trials, what do you turn to for confidence? What is the knee-jerk reaction to seek out in the midst of your difficulties and pain? Brothers and sisters, in Christ, we have great confidence. He is our light. He is our salvation. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. All who are in Christ have a stronghold that will last through every battle, and we have the great assurance of knowing that he has saved us from every, uh, and will save us from every other circumstance and situation and has always in our lives. He has saved us even from our greatest enemy, death. We can stand now with David in the face of our trials and claim, yet I will be confident. So David has meditated on who God is. He has set his mind on the truth that God is for him and no one can be against him. And he has great confidence in God. But looking at the urgency of his trials, you can still feel the pressing need for deliverance. David needs to go to God and ask for rescue and from his enemies. So the next thing that we expect that he's going to say is, Lord, Conquer my enemies. God, you have made all my enemies stumble in the past. Do it again. God, deliver me from this evil. Lord, you are the host of the angel, angelic host in heaven. Uh, you are the Lord of their hosts. Send an army to fight this battle for me. We expect him to ask for deliverance because if we're honest, that's what we would likely do. God, don't you see the pain, the suffering, the hurt? Please help me. Lord, you are the divine physician. Please heal me. Lord, take this thorn away from me. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking for God uh, to deliver us, to give us relief in a trial, or give you an escape, maybe from some persecution you're suffering. But David shows us a more blessed way, a more blessed way to approach our trials. So what do we see him do next? He moves to set his heart on God and delighting in him. David's second response to hardships is to delight in God, which we'll see in verses four through six. So we see in verse four 
David is asked and will seek after one thing. One thing. There is one thing that is central to everything that he wants and desires. If you had to take everything that David sought after and lived for and boiled it down to one thing, here it is. That I may dwell in your house, in the house of the Lord, all the days of my life. David isn't just you know, wanting an escape or trying to relocate, like, you know, hey, well, there's a lot of enemies that have kind of moved into the neighborhood. Let me go on Zillow and see if there's a new place I can move to. No, David's one desire here is to be as close to God as possible at all times. Now, David knows that God is everywhere. He's not just in one place. He's omnipresent. And David himself says in Psalm 139, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. David knows God is everywhere, and he's with his people every single moment. So what does he mean by wanting to dwell in the house of the Lord? What David is saying here, that his one desire was to seek nearness to God to seek his face, which is how he puts it uh, further down in the psalm in verse eight. He rephrases, he says, your face, Lord, do I seek. He wants to seek God's face, which we saw earlier was to seek God's presence. It's commanded this way in Psalm 105, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. So that is what David wants to seek God's presence continually. Not in a sense that God ever moves away from his children, but because we're prone to lose sight of him. We as sinners allow our hearts to be taken captive by other things than God and God's beauty, other things than his majesty. We let the things of this world and the fears of this life drown out our desires for God. Our affections towards the Lord so often become a dull shadow of what they should be because there's so many idols competing for our affections. And we all know this intuitively. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know there are moments, seasons in your life where your love feels cold. When you know doing your Christian duties feels more like a chore than a privilege. We've all felt that. But when that happens, the Holy Spirit in us drives us to crave nourishment, to crave refreshment, and a sense of nearness to God again. It's like holding your breath. At some point, there is something in you that just gasps for the air and drives you to yearn for God. You yearn to worship God. And that is what David is seeking here. He's seeking to constantly and continuously have the flame of his desires for God fanned stronger and stronger and to delight in the Lord and have his delight grow more and more to the point that there's nothing else left in his heart, no room left for anything else to trouble him or for him to be afraid of. That is where David's sanctuary is, his refuge. Not just in his relationship to God, as we saw a moment ago, but in his constant worship of God. And that is our blessed refuge in times of trouble as well. See, worship drives away all fears. As you can become completely engrossed in and consumed by adoring the one that you love with your entire being, everything else just seems to fade away. 
You see, worship draws our hearts to heaven. Worship is what draws us up out of the bog and the muck and the pains and sorrows of this life and this world and gives us a glorious glimpse of the Lord in heaven, the wonders of his majesty. That's why David desires to be in the house of the Lord. It was the visual representation of God's presence, and it was the one place where there was constant worship of God by God's people. David wants to spend all his, de- his days delighting in the presence of the Lord. And look at how he puts this beautifully in verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David says there are two things he desires to do in the house of the Lord. Gaze at God's beauty and to inquire. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I could spend several sermons just on this one glorious phrase. Now this is not looking specifically at God physically, and we, we know that because the Lord told Moses that anyone that look on, uh, look on him would not live. But to sum it up succinctly, God's beauty is the attribute of God that he has everything to be desired, everything desirable in his person and other attributes. Let me say that one more time. God's beauty is the attribute of God that he has everything desirable in his person and other attributes. See, to gaze on it means to be in constant awe of God and all that he has revealed himself to be. This is being enraptured by God's person as he reveals himself in his word. If you've never experienced the joy of worshiping God through pondering his attributes, I commend the study of it to you, study of them, study of the Lord. Think on it deeply. There's been nothing more in my life that has given me greater joy than meditating on and gazing on the beauty of the Lord as he's revealed himself in scripture. So what does it have to do with worshiping in God's house? Okay, you you can gaze, but why God's house? Well, for the Israelites, it was everything. Everything in their worship was centered around the word. All of the sacrifices were attended to meticulously in the exact way that they were prescribed in God's law. All the songs, all the worship were scripture that was being sung like the psalm that we're studying now. Worship was completely and entirely focused on the Lord and what he had said. So David could rightly think of worship as gazing on the beauty of the Lord. David wanted to worship and to inquire in God's temple, he says. David wanted to learn from God's word how he should live his life, how he should walk in a pleasing manner to God in a way that showed God's glory before others. So why does David want these things? Why does he want this? Why, when the enemy is practically at the door, Disaster is already upon him. Why does he want to just sit and gaze at God? David tells us why in verse 5. He knows that when he seeks God as his highest priority, God will deliver him in the midst of his trouble. God will set him on solid ground. And this is what Christ said in Matthew chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. 
See, when you seek God's righteousness first, God will grant you all things necessary to bring you to worship him more. Everything you need. There's nothing that can happen that's out of step with God's plan. So the best thing you can do in life's trials is to seek God. In the middle of the storm, you might as well be on the beach basking in in his glory. David knew this, so he set his heart and his mind to bask in that warmth. He set the desires of his whole being to savor God's glory and to seek the warmth that comes from the light of his presence. And David is so certain that God will grant this desire that he knows he will be delivered now. That's why he says in verse 6, And now my head shall be lifted up by my enemies all around me. He knows God will deliver him even now. And the assurance, that assurance immediately drives him back to focus on the joy of worshiping God when he is delivered. That's why in the second half of verse 6 he says, And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. David delights in God's presence and deliverance not because it will lead him out of harm's way, but because it will lead him to what he wants most, to worship God. So you have to ask yourself, have you ever desired to worship the Lord like this? Have you ever had it as the one thing that was central in your life? The one thing that you seek? See, this sense of need for God's presence can easily get lost uh, to us. Our distractions and troubles might be different than what David was facing here. I mean, most of us aren't getting attacked by evil men or having ourselves hunted down by armies of any, any sort. I hope not. Uh, but consider a few subtle ways, a few subtle ways that we get distracted from seeking this one thing. We often get caught up in the world and act like there's more pleasure in worldly entertainment than in worshiping the Lord. We sometimes act as, as though the assembly of evildoers has more to offer to us than the congrega- congregation of the Lord, being with God's people. Or maybe we do center our lives around the word, and we have, but we have a dullness in our passion for God. We have so much access and ability to hear good sermons, good teaching, good books, that we kind of just become numb to the whole, whole thing of God's presence. It's just part of life, the background noise. And most of us here serve in church regularly. And that service started from, likely, a desire to be near God and serve God's people. But we get so busy that we lose sight of that one thing. And consider Martha and Mary in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Martha welcomes the Lord to her house, serves him. She wants to serve the Lord because she, she loves him. She's so glad that he's there. But she gets busy focusing on the duty. She gets so busy that she forgets the joy of being in God's presence. And her sister Mary, on the other hand, just sits at his feet and listens to him. So Martha becomes upset and asks Jesus to rebuke her sister Tell her to help. But in Luke chapter 10, verses 41 through 42, Jesus replies this, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. So what was this good portion? 
What was this one thing that Mary desired that wasn't going to be taken away? Well, in Luke 10.39, we see the end of the verse. Martha sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. She was at his feet and listened to his teaching. Or to put it in the way that David says it here in Psalm 27, she was gazing on the beauty of the Lord and being in his presence and she was inquiring of him. See, brothers and sisters, let us remember our good portion and desire it. Let us desire it as the one thing that we seek and let's, let us seek the Lord and inquire of him. So in the face of his trials, David responds by setting his mind on the truth of God and setting his heart to delight in the Lord's presence. And now, next, in verses 7 through 12, he prays. He desires to worship God, and that desire to worship drives him to pray. So David's third response to hardships that we see is to plead for the Lord's presence. Plead for the Lord's presence. So in verse 7, he begins his, his prayer with an appeal to be heard. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. This is an intense plea that God, the king of the universe, would hear David's request. David understands God's holiness, and he knows his position before God. So he begs God to hear his request, to be merciful and gracious to answer it. Now, in the previous section, David is completely courageous in in the face of all these fearful circumstances, completely courageous. But now, when he comes to God, he's filled with reverential awe. David knows that there's nothing good in him that entitles him to have his prayers answered or even have them heard. David knows he has no merit to claim or even ask anything of God, which is why he says in verse 9, Turn not your servant away in anger and cast me not off, forsake me not. David says, God, hear me. Don't turn away. Answer my prayer. But based on what? Based on what does he beg God to hear him and answer him? Look again at verse 9. O you who have been my help, O God of my salvation. David comes before God and says, God, hear me. Answer my prayer. Do this because you are the one that saved me. You are my help. You are my salvation. I plead this based on your faithfulness and love towards me. Now, before we look at his petition, what he asked for specifically, notice what he doesn't pray, what he doesn't ask for. Deliverance. He doesn't ask for escape or victory. Why? Well, because David knows that if he seeks God, it's primary, then God will take care of everything else. Seek him first. So what does he plead for? Well, the whole section can be broken down into uh, two, or prayer for two specific things, and I want you to see these. We'll kind of hold these apart for a second. In verse 8 and 9, we see he seeks God's face and asks the Lord to grant to grant his, uh, his seeing of God's face. And in verse 11, he asked the Lord to teach him. He asked to be taught. Now, don't miss this, that in verse 4 of the last section, David said he wanted to see God's presence and gaze on his beauty. 
And now he, play, he pleads to God to grant that. He says in verse 8 and 9, Your face, Lord, do I seek. In the beginning of 9, hide not your face from me. And also in verse 4, he said he wants to inquire. He wants to inquire. He wants to grow in knowledge of how to live a life that pleases God. And now in verse 11, he asks, Teach me your way, O Lord. You see, the two things that David said he wanted in the last section are the two things that he prays for in this section. These are the two things he pleads for. His main desire is to be in God's house, to worship God so that he can have these things, see God's face and to be taught by God. But he wants it so strongly that he can't wait He wants it so strongly that he has to have it now. Even in these trials, he says, give me that one desire. Grant me a sense of your presence and teach me, Lord. Now, we already looked at what it means to uh, seek the Lord's face, that that it means to be in his presence, to constantly have our affections and our heart trained on God to the point where nothing else uh, can be present But, and we know that God doesn't move from us. It's our affections that move from God. We lose sight of him. We as sinners allow our hearts to be taken captive by things other than God's beauty, other than his majesty. So what do we do when we lose sight of God's beauty? Just muster up in our own strength, power to look at God, squint really hard and try to see him, No, because that would be in our own strength. And uh, these are spiritual things and spiritually discerned. So we have need that God would grant us grace to make his presence felt. It's only through God's mercy that we can see this glory through eyes of faith. And that's why we need to pray with David. Lord, hide not your face from me. So David prays for this sense of God's presence. But there's an important order to his prayer in verse 8, and I want you to see this in verse 8. The progression is, I'll describe it first, and then we'll come back to it. The progression is that God commanded something. David obeys from the heart by making it his desire and then pursues obeying the command. See, look at verse 8 with me now. See if you can catch the order. You have said, seek my face. There's the command. My heart... David desires it, says to you, prays back to God the things that God has said to seek and, and ask for. Your face, Lord, do I seek. And in, his, in, in the, the, the center of his heart, David knows this is exactly what he is seeking. So don't miss that. David exemplifies how we should seek God. We should know his word. We should know God's commands. It should be in our hearts, and we should delight in obeying it. We should apply it and obey it in every aspect of our lives, and then pray that God would grant that we desire what we desire according to his word. God commands that we desire it, we desire it, and pray that God grants that desire. This is a perfect example of how to draw near to God. As James says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. David knows that God will grant this. And he expresses his confidence of that in verse 10. For my father, he says, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. 
Now, there's no reason to believe that David's father and mother actually uh, forsook him in any way. In fact, in Scripture, uh, there's a record of how David's father and mother left their homes and joined him in exile as Saul was hunting him, and he was fleeing for his life. But David's point here is even our closest relationships may fail but the Lord will fulfill all his promises. Everyone else that we can depend on at some point may become unreliable, but God and his words, his promises are forever. So David prays that God would show him his face, that David would have a profound sense of nearness to God and expresses confidence that the Lord will grant it. Next, second thing that David prays here. He asked in verse 11 that God would teach him. He says, verse 11, teach me your ways, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. So David asked the Lord to guide him. He wants instruction from God on how to live a godly life, how he should live in the midst of these trials and these circumstances. And he says he needs this now because of his enemies. In verse 12, he says, false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. His enemies want him to stumble. They're closing in around every corner. One wrong step, and David's ruined. David needs wisdom. He needs guidance, and he needs his path to be level and straight, the Lord to make it straight for him. So he asks God to teach him to live rightly and guide him. He says in verse 12, give me not up to the will of my adversaries. He asks for God's guidance through the trial, but only because of that one thing. Only because of the deliverance would grant him his heart's desire. The one thing that he is seeking to look upon, the goodness of the Lord. To paraphrase it, he prays, God, teach me your will. Teach me your way so that my adversaries won't succeed. Father, lead me through this life's trials so that I can have that one thing I desire, to worship you, Lord. Lord, please smooth out my path so I can devote myself entirely to seeking you. You see, David is seeking and pleading for the fulfillment of that one thing that he desires, to be able to worship the Lord. So he asks for delight in God and guidance to be able to. And David believes that God will answer this prayer. So he ends the psalm with a fourth final response to his hardship. His fourth response, trusting God, verses 13 and 14. Now this is so simple that we can miss it. David trusts that God has commanded him to seek him, and then God will therefore answer it. If God has commanded it, David wants it, he's seeking it, God will answer it. So simple. God will give him the desires of his heart as he seeks and delights in the Lord. So David says in verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He has faith that God will answer this prayer. And not just in some vague way where David's like, just you know, be positive, it's gonna be okay. No, he knows that God will answer this while he lives and he will praise God in his house. David rests his heart and his mind on trusting God by faith that God will do this. He will have that one thing he seeks, to worship God with God's people 
to gaze on God's beauty. He is confident of this. Yes, the enemies are still there. The trials haven't gone anywhere. They're still to be faced. But the knowledge, that knowledge that God will answer this prayer gives David strength to continue. Even in the midst of his afflictions, he rests on God's timing and God's way, and he gains confidence and strength from it. Look how he says it in verse 14. He says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Waiting for and trusting God is what allows you to have strength and be courageous. That is what David's saying. That is the source of his strength. It's God and waiting for God and his timing. Listen to how this is beautifully uh, put in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31. And we all know this passage. Have you not known... Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. See, you in your own strength, you'll grow tired. You will get weary. But those that trust in the Lord will have their strength renewed. Trust in the Lord. So, we have to ask, what are you struggling with? What is troubling you in your life right now? What is troubling your soul? What are you afraid of? We all go through times of deep pain and sadness. We all have struggles with something that threatens to overwhelm us in our walks. Depression, pain, betrayal, discouragement, fear. What are you struggling with? This psalm, dear brother and sister, is for you. This model of prayer and praise is a permanent source of comfort as it directs your heart rightly to the Lord. So when life's trials come, we must seek refuge in God in the way that God has given us. First, meditate on these truths. Remind yourself that you are in Christ and he is your light and your salvation. Second, delight in God. Find so much joy in God and worshiping him that there's no room left for anxiety or fear. Be consumed by delighting in his presence. Third, plead for the Lord's presence. Our trials should drive us to desiring God more, desiring more nearness to him. Seek him in his righteousness and he will provide all that you need. We have this promise from him. If we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. This is a prayer that the Lord delights to answer. Fourth, trust God. Wait on him and his timing in the trial. Find strength in trusting him. In your weakness, his strength is made and seen perfectly. You can't do this in your own strength. You can only do this because God is your light and your salvation. There's a reason why David starts the psalm this way. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, 
Let light, the light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So dear brother and sister, set the eyes of your heart on beholding the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Look to Christ who lived perfectly in all trials, all pain, all suffering. Christ who perfectly and confidently entrusted himself to the Father in the face of all of his afflictions. Look to Christ who is your light and your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the clarity of it. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you for uh, so much for the truth that you are our light and our salvation. Father, we pray that you would cause us to desire you and worshiping you more than anything else in this life. Help us to have right priorities. Let me say right priority, one singular purpose to worship, to love, to adore, and to delight in you and your presence, Lord. So we pray, Lord, draw near to us. Turn not your face away. Give us the strength and grace we need to draw close to you, Lord, as we cannot do it on our own. And we pray that you would, even as we leave now, cause us to have a great delight and sense and pleasure of your nearness in our life. In Christ's name we pray, amen.